This week's Data Nuts podcast is sponsored in part by Interop ITX, the only independent conference for technology leaders. Get a year's worth of objective IT education in one week. Visit interopitx.com and use promo code PACKETPUSHERS for a 20% discount. The easiest way to secure and accelerate your website is with Encapsula, protecting over 4 million sites from individual bloggers to the Fortune 50. Visit Encapsula.com slash PacketPushers and use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. Our highly tuned Sensotron scanners have detected some strange readings in the Liba Quadrant. It appears that the DataNauts crew has stumbled upon a level 12 DevOpsian mega beast capable of launching dozens of open source photon torpedoes from its fierce gaze. But before battle, hey, we're going to put into a port at the hidden HashiCorp refuge base to refuel, rearm, and let's just be honest, geek out on how we can turn this bad boy monster into a pile of harmless code. Howdy, everyone. I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on the Twitters. And with me is my co-host, who collects drop packets off the data center floor as an alternate food source. He's Ethan Banks, at EC Banks on the Twitters. And this is the Data Nuts Podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packetpushers.net. As I alluded, we do have a very special guest on today to talk around various things in cloud and code and APIs and whatnot, but also HashiCorp itself. We have Mitchell Hashimoto. Welcome to the show. And for those few people that don't know you, who are you and what do you do? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm Mitchell Hashimoto. I'm the founder of HashiCorp. And for most of, I guess, the community, I'm better known as kind of the creator of certain tools such as Vagrant or Vault or Terraform or a number of others. There's seven. So uh, usually one of those three will get you those. That's cool. I think Vagrant is almost like Kleenex. It's like a household name. Everyone's <laughs> used it at this point. Was that your first product that you came out with? It was the first one that was successful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Excellent. Something that I think you've been riffing on throughout the community and at various events, the idea of this three layers architecture. You said this has become the foundation for just about any stacks. What are these three layers and why are they so important to you? I guess, you know, one of the things we've been doing HashiCorp for uh, four years now, and this is the first year where we've had enterprise products and we've been selling and the people we sell to are the global 2000, you know, they're big, they're big companies and our open source tools have been doing very, very well. They get millions of downloads, but it sort of takes a different kind of messaging to communicate sort of with with the enterprise companies. And it's not, you know, some engineers may joke of why that may be, but really it's just because they have a unique set of challenges. They view the world in a certain way. It's not wrong. And one of the ways that really helps with that is just clearly describing sort of what problems we're solving. And something that helps with that is this sort of three-layered approach. So in a world where there's Docker and Kubernetes and Mesosphere and Ansible and Chef and Puppet and us and all these other tools it's very hard for someone who isn't sort of paying attention every single day to know what the boundaries are, and that's totally understandable. So uh, one of the ways we describe it is these three-layers approach, which is to deliver any modern application today and in the future, you need something to provision your infrastructure, you need something to secure your infrastructure and your applications, and you need something to run them. And those are the sort of the three layers we look at. And for us, provisioning is done with Terraform, Securing is done with Vault, and running is done with Nomad. And the thing that, that we really like about these three layers is that we, 
as me, as a biased like sort of creator of these tools, we don't need to do all three. Like if we have a solution for all three, but if you want to use CloudFormation for provisioning and Kubernetes for running, then you could still use Vault in the middle. It makes it like a clean separation that helps us go in because there were definitely conversations we'd go into before where you know we'd get the meeting where it'd say like, oh, because we're using Puppet, we don't need Vault. And it's like, well, you probably do actually. Um, <laughs> and, and we'd have to explain it. And having this consistent, you know, the same thing we'd say in every meeting, the same thing that's on our website, having this consistent message we do everywhere really cleans it up and saves a lot of time and gets rid of that conversation. Mitchell, does the layered architecture change when we're working in, uh, say, mixed cloud, hybrid cloud, and the on-premises world? No, absolutely not. And that's, I think that's a hint that it's, it's not completely wrong <laughs> as an approach to how we describe <laughs> things. Right. So because it's an architecture and because it's designed to be, it sounds like kind of modular almost, like choose your own adventure between runtime, infrastructure provisioning, and security. It's not so much that you're picking specific tools to operate those layers, but that you pick something to operate at those layers. And right. since it's abstracting the underlay, because where my question's coming from is if the infrastructure provisioning part is one of those pieces, then wouldn't the infrastructure kind of be relevant? Like you'd have to support a specific type of compute or maybe I'm operating too low in the stack. No, that's a good question. So Terraform, yeah, yeah, you're right. Terraform you know, has to spin up a very specific kind of infrastructure. Is it Google? Is it Azure? Is it AWS? Is it some physical setup? And one of the unique aspects of Terraform actually compared to other things you might slide in there is that it works with all these different providers. If you use CloudFormation, it would just be AWS, for example. Um, Fair enough. The thing is, though, is this model is not specific to specific clouds. So, for example, if at the run layer you're using Nomad or you're using Kubernetes, then you very cleanly separated sort of describing what your application needs to run and how your application is run from any underlying infrastructure. With a scheduler like Nomad, you say my uh, application needs at least three instances running for you know high availability. Please auto scale it for me. It needs this much RAM, it needs this much compute, it needs to be close to the database so it can access it quickly, do it. And then Nomad goes out and on a thousand servers figures out where's the best place to place these three instances of your application. And you can see that in that sort of worldview, you don't really care sort of what your infrastructure is underneath. And again, just going back one more time, like I said, though, if you don't use a scheduler yet, then you probably do care, but that still doesn't get rid of the need for a provision or secure step either. Yeah, I was, I was feeling the collective tears of infrastructure engineers saying, what do you mean the infrastructure doesn't matter? Like, it's <laughs> That also brings me to another thought, and that the runtime layer you're describing with Nomad and Kubernetes, and it could be containers and virtual machines and whatnot, really feels like the star of the show lately. Everyone's really focused on how are we going to package the app and where is it going to run? Does that mean that the need for like really deep expertise at the infrastructure layer just goes away or is reduced? Or should we put more emphasis on it? Yeah, no, totally not. I think at a very basic level, at the end of the day, no matter what, an application is running on a server. And so that server needs to be set up in some way. I think the world we're heading to is just less snowflake servers. Every server should be much easier to set up. It should be very easy to add and remove servers, things like that. I, I guess the world we're heading to is, you know, the pets versus cattle model. We're heading towards cattle and not pets. But it should be music sort of to a, I'll call it like traditional operator it should be music to a traditional operator's ears because what a scheduler really does is remove the burden of application deployment or like diverse application deployment from the operator. What the, what the operator now has to worry about 
is server automation and installing that scheduler onto the machine. Uh, the very security and, and typical sort of server setup there. But it's no longer, you know, okay, I have these 10 Java apps and I have this one Rails app and this one needs Redis and this one needs this. It's sort of like that is slowly becoming less and less of a thing. Right. How do you see the runtime layer evolving, Mitchell? So we got virtual machines today that almost everybody's using, tons of tooling built around that. Containers are really hot. Unikernels have popped up as an interesting way to deploy apps in certain circumstances. Are each of these purpose-built that are going to be all be with us for a long time, or are we going to see, you know, eventually virtual machines are going to kind of fade out and we're going to move to containers or unikernels? Or what's your take? I'm actually, you know, I'm not sure who's going to, like, win, so to speak. But I think no matter what, winning means maybe a majority, but it doesn't mean anywhere close to 100%. I think that what I've seen is sort of, at least for the next five years, I'm really confident that it's going to be pretty heterogeneous. There's going to be a lot of VMs, a handful of physical servers without VMs or anything, a lot of containers. And yeah, I think it's going to just be a lot of everything. And and that's, again, one of the nice things about sort of the scheduling layer in a lot of ways. A lot of them, you know, prefer Docker as a packaging format for your application, but also, you know, things like Nomad accepts VM images as well. So it's, they also don't truly care sort of what it's going to be. That almost underscores the importance of the architecture you're laying out here because it started as all physical and then physical and, and virtual with, with VMs. Now we've got containers and then Unicode. Like it's becoming so complex that we kind of yeah. need something at that layer to manage this weird cattle pet homogeny world. I don't know. I, I imagine like a cowboy yeah. running with like weird animals everywhere now uh, <laughs> in the data center. No, yeah, that's totally right. I mean, it's sort of a menagerie of things in the data center. And I think there's two approaches. One approach is you either try to change that to just be a single type of thing. You sort of fight a lot of different people to say like, okay, we're only going to use containers. We're only going to use Linux. We're only going to, you know, you're just trying to homogenize on so many different things. And it's sort of a battle for a lot of reasons, like, you know, best tool for the job or expertise or job market or, or any sort of various reasons. Or on the flip side, what you could do is, is loosely constrain that, say, like, here's the three languages that we like to use. We accept both containers and VMs. Sort of constrain it loosely, but embrace the fact that there's going to be multiple types of technology in there. And I found that that approach is both sort of more successful for the business because they could deliver value faster. It keeps employees happy because they have choice of whether they want to work with the awesome new thing or they could work with something they're very comfortable with. And it's all okay. So being a little cynical here for just a moment, uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned that one of the layers was security and you, you used Vaulted as an example. Doesn't it feel, or at least to me, it feels like breaches are just a slap on the wrist. There's no real blowback from having data stolen. Security theater, it, it seems like a real thing. With that in mind, is security really so important that it is the third layer in the stack or it's a major layer in the stack? Or should we just focus on the first two layers? I think that security is sort of the biggest change in uh you know, you might call it DevOps, someone might call it DevOps, but it's sort of just like the biggest change in, in infrastructure, I guess, in the past 18 months. Change being like it's it's getting a lot of attention. I don't think it's a slap in the wrist. A lot of companies are investing a lot of a lot more money into security because they've seen the failures of some other really big name companies that ended up hurting them a lot, reputation-wise or actually just directly financially or legally. Yeah, a lot's changing. And this isn't just because of that, though. It's sort of necessitated by a move to this 
dynamic scheduler model, this microservice model, cloud, sort of all those things put together, all those things individually change it in some small way and put together sort of make the pre-existing way of doing security not scalable. So the, my favorite example that I give is that a few of us at HashiCorp went to talk to a very large bank in London and we were in the room with a bunch of executives, uh, including the CIO, and we were mm. explaining sort of this vision, and the CIO started laughing, which is sort of never a good sign in a <laughs> sort of business meeting at that stage. But he's, you know, he stopped laughing, and he, and he said, you know, look, it doesn't matter if our bank can deploy an application in five milliseconds, because it takes us three months to approve a firewall change to allow traffic to that application. So... It just didn't matter how fast anything else happened. It didn't matter how fast they provisioned infrastructure. It didn't matter how fast they deployed applications because their issue was that they had a centralized source of security, basically. All security flowed through one group of people, and that highlighted sort of an issue. And we're still working with them today, actually. And, and that's it. We identified vaults as sort of the primary thing they need to adopt. They looked at it, and they're adopting it. And the main difference there is application-level security. Like, that security team should be worrying about sort of core network security. You should be worried about perimeter security. You should be worried about security per server, you know, what versions of packages need to be installed and things like that. They should worry about that. But what that team shouldn't be worried about is the application level connections. Like they should set against a sandbox. They should say all connections must be TLS. You know, at the, at the networking layer, we'll reject any non-TLS connections. All connections must have identity attached to them, whether that's TLS client certs or however you do it. And you must check permissions sort of in the application and there's sort of like teams to help you do that. But other than that, it should be fair game. Like the application team should be able to move in parallel at sort of maximum velocity. And, and I think that's the big sea change we're seeing. Do schedulers ultimately help us with that, where it's not just standing up workloads, but it's also standing up security around uh, that workload, where some of that basic stuff is just handled? Yeah, so the biggest challenge with deployment is sort of the secure introduction problem, which is like, okay, how do I get the secret with which to connect to this secret manager? It's like, how do I get my authentication information to get my client cert, to set up my permissions, to verify that the person connecting to me is real? Like, who do I trust? And one of the ways to do that is the scheduler. The scheduler, if you trust the scheduler uh, and secure the scheduler, which is something that you know a core security team could and should help with, then you could trust the scheduler will give you sort of the token and, and it can negotiate that for you. I love that at the end of the day, applications still run on servers. I love that quote because there's still a need to understand and master the infrastructure layer. And I emphasize layer. But I think the takeaway here is there's new and, and nuanced ways such as managing schedulers and the underlay versus you know manually pulling levers and provisioning applications and VLANs to take into consideration. So no, infrastructure engineering is not going to go extinct. It's just going to change. And that's a good thing. Ethan, what stood out for you? I thought it was a great point he made that we shouldn't really be thinking of virtual machines in opposition to containers, in opposition to unikernels. You know, these are all tools that have a role to play. And so much of the media is like, well, what's VMware going to do when Docker takes over the world? And it's just the equation isn't that simple. Mitchell made that point that I don't know how you define winners, some percentage of market share, but it's not like there's going to be only one thing that's out there carrying workloads. So that was just, just great perspective.
As we pause the Datanauts infrastructure rocket for just a moment, let's talk about the conference the Packet Pushers are going to be at in May 2017, Interop ITX, and they are a sponsor of today's show. Interop ITX is where tech pros go to get objective, full-stack IT education, and it takes place May 15th through 19th at the MGM in Las Vegas. You can join me, Ethan Banks, along with Greg Farrow and Drew Conray-Murray of the Packet Pushers, where we will be putting on the Future of Networking Summit, and that is a two-day session where we're going to take a deep dive into next-generation developments in the WAN, data center networking, network operations, software-defined security, all the things that we think are emerging over the next one, five, and ten years. Register for Interop ITX and attend other hands-on workshops like the Future of Data, Container Crash Course, Dark Readings Cybersecurity Summit, and the Open Source IT Summit. The events conference tracks focus on security, DevOps, cloud, infrastructure, data, and analytics, all the technologies you need for a successful full-stack IT strategy. If you're looking to accelerate your career, there's also plenty of sessions on leadership and professional development. Plus, check out over 100 vendors at Interop ITX's business hall, where you'll have the opportunity to check out what leading and emerging tech vendors have to offer. Join us at Interop ITX this coming May and use promo code PACKETPUSHERS when you register, and you'll receive a 20% discount. We want to see you in Vegas, so go on up to interopitx.com and reserve your spot today. So, Mitchell, the brave new world of uh, managing infrastructure seems to be all about APIs. Anything that's got an API can be managed through uh, declarative code. That gives you automation and history and lifecycle management and so on. Would you agree with that? Is it uh, APIs taking over the world and this is where we're headed to next? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Something I like to say is that if it doesn't have an API, it doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there, there goes like 80% of the data center just gone right there. Like, <laughs> no API. Get the heck out of here. <laughs> I mean, but that, that implies kind of a lot, though. I mean, if it doesn't have an API, it doesn't exist. So from a standpoint of we've been managing things with tools other than APIs for a long time. I mean, so what you're really go- saying there is APIs are better than SNMP, uh, command line, any of the old school ways that we would have done things. It's got to have an API in your mind. So what does that imply for infrastructure engineers? You know, we've got to have API documentation that we can read, and we've got to be able to access that API through whatever tooling. What advice do you have for people that are trying to sort this out? What I'm saying there is sort of, like, in the future, everything needs to have an API to be relevant. And that doesn't mean the API is the only way to interface with it. Like, I think Vault, in our case, is a good example. Vault is 100% API-driven. You can't do anything in Vault other than through the API. But we sit a CLI in front of that API. But the CLI is a totally, like, it could be cleanly separated from Vault's core, sort of. It's just an API client that gives you a more human, accessible interface in front of it. The UI is the same way. The UI just consumes the publicly accessible API. And so I think that that'll always be important. Uh, There's obviously people at the end of everything. And so you need human-friendly ways to interact with these APIs. And one of our tools to really do that in in a really great way is Terraform. Terraform is that declarative lifecycle management for anything with an API, basically. It manages the create, read, update, delete process for anything with an API. The reason, though, that everything needs an API is just because if it doesn't have an API, there's no application programming interface. It means that there's probably just a human programming interface, whatever that might be, like if it's purely a GUI or purely a CLI. And what ends up happening there is that a person basically in any like repeatable task 
is just never, ever going to be faster than a computer, ever. And so what, what you're saying without having an API is that that is always going to be your bottleneck at some point in the future. As everything else is being more automated, as we're moving into new problems, that thing is going to consistently just be a slow part. And if you put an API around it, you might spend years without ever using the API. You might spend years using the GUI on top of the API or the CLI. Um, and that's okay as long as there's a pathway to automation in the future when you're ready to move on to the next problem. And so I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, that's what I'm seeing now with SaaS kind of in a big way. So SaaS for a long time, you would just log into a dashboard to set up various things with the SaaS. You would click around, you would set up all the settings, you would create users. And that was fine when you had like five SaaSes or you know five or less SaaSes that you're using for your company. But now at the enterprise layer or at the sort of startup layer, there's like two dozen or more SaaSes you're using for a variety of different things, both infrastructure related and, and not. It would be really nice. Like what you really want to be able to do is say like, you know, manage it with code. And, and a good example actually of this, I'll use like that one that will apply to everyone is GitHub. GitHub is a SaaS mm-hmm. that I'm sure everyone that listens to this uses. And historically what you do is you invite collaborators with the UI, you set up organizations and teams and all that stuff for your company or, you know, what have you in the UI. And what a lot of more forward-thinking Terraform users are doing is they're now versioning and codifying that. Instead of clicking, they're saying in code, okay, I have these five organizations. Those organizations have these, you know, 30 people. Those teams can access these repositories. These repositories have these settings set up. GitHub more and more is getting everything API-driven. And now they could version control their entire GitHub settings. They could see history. They could do pull requests on the settings. They could do approvals. You know, if they move to GitHub Firewall Edition or the GitHub Enterprise or the, the on-premises one, they could just re-apply you know, apply their settings and get all of them flat out instantly. And that's sort of the model I see a lot of people heading to. SaaS is sort of an extreme example, but you know, with, with infrastructure, with schedulers, with security, sort of everything. Yeah, it's something that uh, I was thinking back to a show we did on APIs specifically. I think it was the show 49. Pulled a quote there that, you know, APIs common for applications. For a long time, I think they were just like this, for me, this thing in the corner that developers use. And I'm like, I don't know what that thing is because I, I didn't talk SOAP. And now they're becoming relevant across IT disciplines, you know, as an infrastructure, networking, automation, whatever, cloud person. They are not really a nice to have. They're, they're really something that I need to learn as a discipline. And I need, like you said, maybe not today, but definitely at some point, the ability to program and automate all this infrastructure, especially if I want to build a cloud environment of any meaningful substance, right? I can't have lever pullers in the way. And one thing that I was thinking about as you were talking about reasons to to remove the human, it'd be great if we could just have no humans in IT. That's except for me. (laughs) That's that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm just just kidding on that one. I've actually gotten flack for that before. Like I'm trying to just replace (laughs) people. It's, It's really not it. Actually, I'll just like use this as like a little like, two-minute moment to explain sort of my view on that. And sort of my view on that is, is like, I think that the, the special skill that all people have that makes us sort of unique, you know, this is getting like pretty, I don't know, philosophical, I guess, but makes us unique sort of on this planet is uh, creativity. Like our creativity and problem-solving skills are super special, super unique and different per person. So it's almost artistic, I guess. And whenever I see sort of a repetitive task do this thing, follow this checklist, do it every day for the next 30 years. I look at that and I'm just like, no, that's not what people should be doing. People should be creative. They should be artistic. They should do what they like. 
and machines should do the the automated tasks. That's that's what they're good for. So for me, it's about automating those and allowing us to focus on on the problems that aren't solved yet, problems that need creativity. And for like operators in IT, that doesn't mean getting rid of operators in IT. It means that just automating the problems that we've already solved and moving on to the next one. Like schedulers are a new problem. It's like, okay, now that we've automated infrastructure creation and we can create and destroy infrastructure really quickly, how do we like deal with application deployment in that kind of world? That's something that maybe one day or is you know heading in the direction of being automated, but for the time being just needs a lot of human creativity and problem solving to figure it out. And that's more interesting to me. Yeah, and, and you had something uh, that I was reading a piece of the quote was, you know, web portals are tedious for users when we're talking about configuring and managing infrastructure. I mean, that's not a new thing that they've always been tedious and crappy. Why does that matter now and not before? Like what changed to make this no longer tolerable? I mean, I think the thing that changed is having a lot more. There's a lot more web portals you're logging into. There's no law. I mean, when I was growing up and, and I'm, I guess I'm relatively young. So I, in a lot of ways, I'm relatively naive in, in, in that sense. But when I was growing up, you know, I had the one control panel for my web host that did everything. It had domain set up, it had database set up, it was the link to sort of MySQL pages. I could use it for everything. And so it's not a big deal. Like I could log into that and do things. But nowadays, I just feel like I have dozens of portals that do different things that have different passwords. And it's sort of a burden. Mitchell, on uh, on Datanauts, we've covered Giphy, Google Infrastructure for Everyone Else. One of the things that came up with that was... Yeah, but we're not Google. Most companies are not Google. And so does that mean that's not a, you know, an infrastructure to aspire to just because we're not that big, uh, you know, we can't automate that well, we can't have everything in, as code because it's just not practical as a smaller organization? Uh, I mean, I, that's a reasonably valid argument. The way I look at it is just that we never really use the Giphy term, but it's sort of like, for me, I'm not trying to carbon copy anybody else's success and say that if you do this, you'll also be successful or you'll also be able to have all the same benefits. What I'm trying to sort of tease apart in a way is what are the workflow, what are the problems that they've sort of solved in a generic way, separate them out and present them in a sort of consumable, downloadable, buyable way for companies that aren't Google and say, like, which one of these helps you adopt it? If you adopt all of them, you know, if you squint, you do look like Google. But if your problem is just infrastructure automation, then something like Terraform might be all you need. And the rest of the parts don't look like Google. And the way your people management is doesn't look like Google at all. And that's fine. It's just about trying to solve problems for you in a way that maybe, you know, you, your business just doesn't have the the money to invest into, the people to invest into, to, to want to create that sort of thing. I'm just giving you options. Now, Mitchell, that sounds fair. And I guess kind of a final thought I have here and a question that I have for you is around the idea that if everything is code or, or infrastructure should be leaning towards code, do we have to be developers or more like developers as infrastructure people? <laughs> or are we looking for like the sysadmin version two, you know, ops folks with scripting lightsabers? Where, where do we, where's the sweet spot for our skill development moving forward? That's, that's a great question because I went to a couple of very, I guess, more traditional operator or, or networking, actually, conferences. Like last year, I went to Cisco Live a couple times in two different locations, and I actually got this question from a networking engineer, which was, um, it, it was basically, it was kind of hostile, actually, but it was sort of just like he raised his hand and said, this is all great, but I don't want to learn to code, so what do I do? <laughs> 
And it's a good question, but I think what I tried to show him is that it's code in the sense that it's text in a file. It's not programming. And some tools like Chef are. I mean, some tools like Chef are like Ruby, but the tools we create are not directly programming. There's various ways that people who are comfortable programming can kind of do cleverer things with it. But if you look at Terraform's code, for example, it's sort of just, I mean, it's a DSL and it's not if this, then this, or loops or any of that. It's a DSL. And and I think that should be pretty comfortable. One way I told them to look at it was like, this was a Cisco person. So I was like, okay, so for for Cisco, for iOS, you're writing configuration files, right? You're making configuration files. And he said, yeah. And I was like, just consider this a configuration file for your infrastructure. And when you run the application that reads the configuration file, it happens to create infrastructure. It's not programming, right? It's just, it's turning into text what previously wasn't text. A point that Mitchell made that I really identified with was he said, uh, automation frees up humans to work on problems that require creativity. Exactly. If you can automate the boring stuff that you should be able to just automate because it's repeatable and predictable, why spend your time doing that by hand? If you automate that, then you're freed up to think about the harder problems, the interesting business challenges that are coming up and come up with a solution to those sorts of issues, the creativity sorts of problems where you really got to think it through and use your human mind and ingenuity to solve that problem. There's no point in spending time on the, uh, the tedious stuff. What about you, Chris? No, definitely. He had some great quotes on people and creativity, so I definitely enjoyed that that part of the show. I will say, as life gets more sassy, yeah, I said that, um, it's important to have API-level control over your SaaS offerings. And this may sound weird, but I never thought of GitHub as SaaS. I usually think of like Salesforce and ServiceNow, but that light bulb went on, I'm like, oh yeah, it's, I'm using a SaaS product. It made GitHub feel less sexy, I don't know. DDoS listeners, Ethan here. I'm sure you're aware that DDoS attacks are a normal part of life. You've probably been hit by one or you're going to be at some point in the future. And our sponsor, Encapsula, can protect you from those DDoS attacks, distributed denial of service, while also offering bot protection, website security, load balancing, a content distribution network, and it is all one easy-to-use service. And, and if you're missing what the point of this is, the big idea is to put Encapsula in front of your website so that your website is protected. Uh, your website will continue to deliver content even when bad things are happening. The thing here is that Encapsula is seeing all of your traffic anyway, so they're going to block that bad stuff, which is maybe the most important thing. But since they're seeing it all, they're going to accelerate that good stuff too. The bad stuff goes away. The good stuff gets even better. And if you think DDoS protection is no big deal, I personally think it's a really big deal. It's not hard these days for someone to build or even rent someone's command and control network and then unleash terror on your website, keeping your web down, offline. Encapture protects you from this sort of an attack because they have their own massive network, three terabit per second network with 30 data centers housing their packet scrubbers. And I love this little detail. They codename their packet scrubbers Behemoth. Behemoth scrubbers can handle 500 million packets per second, and all of that put together means that putting Encapsula in front of your website means that you can withstand a DDoS attack. So to add Encapsula's capabilities to your website, visit Encapsula.com slash PacketPushers and use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. One more time, that's Encapsula.com slash PacketPushers 
and use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. Okay, so now everything's an API. It's all code, and we're writing very fancy config files, essentially, to instantiate our, our environment. Let's switch gears a little bit. You had some quotes on Twitter that I liked. I'm going to read a couple of them to you. Uh, one was like, everything that we built at HashiCorp, and you said every single one. At least one person told me it was a passionately how bad of an idea it was. And your <laughs> advice was, just build it. It doesn't matter if someone else thinks it's a bad idea as long as you think it's a good idea. you got to give me some background on that. And uh, why do you feel so strongly that it doesn't matter if someone's kind of taking a dump on your parade a little bit? Yeah, it can't, it's not an absolute. I mean, if someone has a really good reason for being a bad idea, they, they very well could be right. I'm not saying to ignore everyone and giving you negative feedback, but <laughs> it's difficult because, you know, that, I don't know the exact word, but, you know, that phrase or, or quote comes to mind, which is, if you ask your customers what they want, they'll describe a camel or they'll, you know, they'll describe a better horse when what they, when what you could give them as a car, you know, yeah. there's stuff like that. But I think that all the ideas we've created, there's been other ways to do them. And a very common, I guess, piece of feedback we always got was that, you know, why would you do that? Because X, Y, and Z already exists. Or another one is like kind of famous on Hacker News is when Dropbox sort of announced themselves. The top comment was like, you could already do this really easily with an FTP server. I don't get it. Um, <laughs> there's all these little like things that's like given enough bailing wire and duct tape, you could solve any problem. That's not what's happening here. It's sort of not just the problem. It's the way it's solved. that's very unique. And for us, at least. And so we kind of went with it. All the tools that we made, we were sort of like, yeah, I just... And then there's a little bit of ego, I guess, attached to it, but it's sort of like, I just, I think I could do it better and uh, I'm going to try. And if it doesn't work, what's the worst that happens if it doesn't work, right? It's open source, so you shut it down, but the source is still available. So anyone could just, if they, you know, sort of bet on it, they could keep using it. And that's early on. Like if you sort of build a business around it, there's obviously, it's not so simple. But the way we do things is we launch something, it's sort of purely an open source project. And if that works, then we sort of build a business around it, like Nomad. Vault Terraform existed for, you know, from anywhere from a year to sort of like a year and a half before we ever did any serious sort of businessy stuff around it that people were betting businesses on it. And so there's a period of time you have to reverse course. But I mean, that's a that's a worst case scenario. I just think that if you're serious about it, then you should take the feedback, consider it, but don't be afraid to just build it. And if you're not serious about it, if it's just for fun, then it really doesn't matter at all. It could actually be a bad idea, but you're almost certainly going to learn something from it. So just do it anyway. Absolutely. It struck me as interesting tweets because I know a lot of the projects you've put together that we've been talking about on this show and some that aren't have been quite successful. It just feels like at this point, people would be like, yeah, okay, if Mitchell's making it, it's probably going to be pretty good. And in fact, at reInvent, I remember watching the stream and seeing that Nike, in fact, had released, uh, I think they open source Cerberus, which was... Mm -hmm. It uses Vault, or, or maybe you could explain how that works. And, and I just thought it was really interesting that they're publicly sharing some stuff that is related to Vault in some way. Yeah, so they use Vault. Luckily, we could talk about it now since they talked about it. Uh, they built Cerberus, which is just a tool that wraps Vault to make consuming secrets easier in the way that they use secrets. So like I mentioned sort of earlier in the show, Vault is completely API-driven. So if you want higher-level primitives around it, then you kind of have to build those yourself if we don't provide them. And you can. That's what's powerful to having the API everywhere. So they built Cerberus, which lives on top of Vault, which gives them higher level sort of API calls to do the things that are very, very common at Nike and are generally probably useful to more people. So uh, that's what that is. 
Could you talk to us about Terraform? Because it's come up a few times in the show. Uh, but if we've not heard of Terraform, give us the uh, the overview. So Terraform is a tool for describing your infrastructure as code. And a lot of other tools have said that. People say, okay, that's what Chef or Puppet says. And the differentiator there is Terraform is actually describing your infrastructure like servers and networks and load balancers and so on and not what's on those servers. So Chef and Puppet describe packages and files and services. Terraform sits one level below that sort of, or one level sort of outside of that and sets up your infrastructure. And so what Terraform can do is given a set of API keys and nothing else basically, and configuration for Terraform of course, but given nothing else, you could run one command and come back to a very complex, complete production ready infrastructure for your company. and people are sort of loving it as a way to declaratively define this stuff because now you have a text-based source of truth for how your infrastructure is set up and configured. You have versioning and history of the changes being made. You have a way to safely make changes going into the future that isn't just clicking around or writing custom tools. And it's kind of a great tool for collaboration as well. You hire someone and they learn Terraform versus every job learning their own way of building infrastructure. So put some more teeth around that, some more specificity. So you said it's below like uh, like if Ansible, uh, these chef and puppet, they're doing state of a server and that state is uh, he's got a web instance and he's got this and that and you know these six other things. And as long as that state is reflected, this server is, is good. You said we're below that with Terraform. And so now I'm thinking like what, physical server or are we talking about the operating system level? Or are you talking about carving up storage in specific pieces, you know, virtualizing network interfaces? Can you just get a little more specific? Yeah, yeah. So Ansible actually is a poor example just because they have a tool that sits at Terraform's level. Chef and Puppet don't anymore. So it's more at the level of, yeah, I need, I need three web servers. I need them to be part of this subnet. I need a load balancer in front of them. That's what Terraform is creating for you. Terraform actually connects with things like Chef, Puppet, Ansible, so that you know once you spin up the server, it hands off to those to be like, okay, make this a web server. I don't know how to do that. I, I made the server. You install whatever package is necessary to sort of make it a web server. But yeah, it, it sort of sits at that layer where it's creating the servers. But it, it could also create virtual networks. It could also create sort of managed physical hardware as well. As you sort of zoom out and look at Terraform as an abstract tool, what it could do is it could manage anything with a create, read, update, delete lifecycle, basically. The thing it was built for, the thing that's most commonly used for, is standing up infrastructure. I like how you always spell out CRUD, because I guess no one likes actually saying CRUD, uh, the create, re- read, update, delete. Uh, and, <laughs> and just to be clear, you could use this anywhere, or is it only in one specific cloud environment, or can, it, can I use it on-prem and both? It just, does, does it care where I'm actually trying to deploy stuff to? Yeah, all of the above, sort of, you could use it anywhere. And that's what makes Terraform unique compared to most other sort of complete solutions out there. So, you know, CloudFormation works for Amazon, but we have a lot of we have a lot of users that use Terraform purely for Amazon just because they think it's better. I like to think so too, but, you know, it, it's, it, both of those could <laughs> do the same job for Amazon. But it's really, really powerful if you use even one other thing. And and what I like to say is that every company uses one other thing, even if it's not a cloud provider itself, infrastructure provider. The lowest common denominator example I use is sort of DNS. It's like maybe you use Route 53. It's very common to not use Route 53. So let's say you're using Cloudflare. With Terraform, you could actually describe, like create a load balancer and then take its DNS record, uh, take its like A record 
and make that a Cloudflare record. And you can actually connect those two together with one tool. And a tool like CloudFormation will just never, probably never do that. Uh, and so that's really powerful. Hmm. Thinking about terraforming from a sci-fi perspective, it's, it's the thing you send down to the planet and you terraform it so then you can move in. So I, I, I kind of get it from that perspective. I was um, actually on a flight back from Europe and I was watching uh, Superman <laughs> on, uh, <laughs> on the in-flight entertainment system. And we had this idea for this project, and, and we had already started working on it. We just didn't have a name. And in that Superman movie, I think it was the most recent Superman movie, I think maybe the, the only one in the past, like, 10 years. But in that Superman movie, they are terraforming a planet. And I, like, paused the screen and just, like, looked at it. and was like, that's the name. That's it. Because <laughs> that's it, the hard part of any open source project, right? What do I call this stupid thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when, when Terraform's done its thing, done its initial work, do I keep interfacing with Terraform or it, it kind of like paves the way for me and then I move in and I don't, I don't need Terraform after that initial work is done? So Terraform, and this is also a more unique aspect of Terraform, is that you keep using Terraform. So there's a lot of other tools out there that claim that they could do this, but people sort of abandon them after the creation step. The key difference that Terraform has that makes it so you can be confident and change is it has a step called a plan. And so given a configuration, you could tell it's a plan, and the plan will tell you what it's going to do. And so you could actually review beforehand what it's going to do and see if you're happy with it. The plan will tell you things, not only like these are changing, but it'll tell you whether that change can be done in place, whether that change requires a destruction and a recreation. You know, like changing an AMI on an instance requires you to destroy that instance and recreate it. And the plan encodes that sort of information. It tells you what is triggering changes. Uh, for example, let's, let's say you change that AMI. It recreates the instance. That often changes the private IP. So now the private IP has to be changed in the ELB. Um, the plan will actually tell you that because you changed the AMI, you're actually cascading a change into the load balancer to change the IP it's pointing to. You can see stuff like that. And people sometimes are like, okay, so it's a no-op mode. But it's not. I, I view a no-op mode as a point in time sort of if you were to run it right now this is what would happen a plan actually has a bigger guarantee because you could save a plan and then pass it back into terraform and say okay make the changes but only if they exactly match this plan if the state of the world changed such that the plan would have changed between the time i ran the plan and ran the apply then bail out i only want you to do what i saw that you said you were going to do and so because of that terraform is used to manage some pretty scary sort of mission critical a large company infrastructure out there. It's like a big are you sure button. You know, no, don't yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I think one of the cool things about it is that like before, um, one of the first big adopters of Terraform was Yelp. And the way infrastructure change worked at Yelp before Terraform was that everyone would sort of write, I think it was CloudFormation, but it was something, you know, everyone would write something. But there was only a couple people that everything had to flow through for approval for infrastructure change because no other tool had a plan. So these two people were the ones that were trusted with understanding the entire Yelp infrastructure and understanding for your changes what the full effect of those changes would be and how they cascaded and things like that. And it was a huge bottleneck for them. Uh, and when Terraform came out, they looked at it and they were immediately able to dramatically sort of lower the burden on those two people and start parallelizing more infrastructure change because now the rule just became anybody could write Terraform code, show the plan to someone else on your team or a specific designated person on your team, not just those two people, show the plan to them, 
And if they say yes, then go for it. And and it kind of like increased the number of people that can make infrastructure change dramatically. So one of the most popular pieces of software, I, I guess in my perspective, I see it at conferences a lot. It's used to demo things. It's Vagrant. I used it with VMware Workstation a while back ago, and it's just a great piece of software. So what does it do and what inspired you to create Vagrant? So yeah, so Vagrant is our tool for reproducible development environments. It also works really well for reproducible demo environments. <laughs> and um, it's our oldest tool. It's heading into sort of six years old in January here in just a moment. And it's you know pretty mature at this point. It's, it's version 1.9. It'll probably reach 2.0 next year. It gets a lot of downloads. Um, there's many books about it. It's been around sort of longest for us. So we don't talk about it as much just because it's sort of well understood at this point. And I guess the new stuff, the interest, the uncertainty is in some of the newer stuff. And so we, we end up talking about that more. But that doesn't mean that we're not sort of giving Vagrant its attention or we're abandoning it or anything like that. We have a team sort of working on Vagrant. We still cut releases maybe once a month. Features are coming in. And yeah, like I said, we're heading towards a 2.0. The motivation for Vagrant for me was at the time I was a developer at a consultancy. And as a developer there, I would see a number of clients off and on and change clients fairly routinely. And it was just a really big pain to set up my machine for this version of Rails and this version of this database and this Apache configuration and that sort of stuff. Like it was just I felt like if someone on another team asked me to jump in and help fix a few bugs, it felt like I was spending the same amount of time setting up my environment to fix those bugs than I was just fixing the bugs. And that was really frustrating to me, especially when I like took a step back and was like, wait a minute, everybody in this consultancy is doing this for every single project. And how much like time is that? We don't bill that time, actually. So it's like, it's not billable. So like, what are we doing? And so I spent sort of a Christmas break uh, thinking about it. I was in college, so I came back from Christmas break, went back to college. It was January, and in my free time, I started working on this thing, and it turned into Vagrant. That's awesome, because one of the things I was thinking about was, is this still in development? Is it still being cut new releases? Is this taking up your time or not? It sounds like it's just so popular. Although at the same time, I only caught it, I think, a couple of years ago. I was at Interop. And uh, Matt Oswalt was showing some some demos, and he kept doing Vagrant up, and like this entire thing would appear, and it's kind of like, what the heck is that thing? That's amazing. <laughs> I was like, oh, I gotta use this. This looked spectacular. So I didn't realize it was so old, though. I don't personally really work on it that much anymore, which is, you know, it, it always is a soft spot for me. So that's kind of sad to think about from time to time, but it definitely still has developers and regular releases. Okay, Mitchell, I think we've squeezed all the knowledge out of your brain that we can for this session of the Data Knots. Uh, wanted to first thank you for agreeing to join us and talk around APIs and infrastructure as code and whatnot. But also, where can folks reach out to you on the interwebs? And do you have anything exciting you want to share coming up in the next couple months or so? Yeah, so, well, thanks for having me. It's, it's very fun. Um, I always love sort of being part of, of things like this. Always interesting. Never quite sure the questions I'm going to get. Um, <laughs> Yeah, to, to find me on the internet is really easy. I sort of try to trust spam filters and don't try to hide anything. So you could find me as Mitchell H, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-H on GitHub, on Twitter, and that will very easily lead you to my email and other forms of communication. The company website, which will give you the links to all the products we make, is hashicorp.com, H-A-S-H-I-C-O-R-P.com. Even though, warning, hashicorp.com sort of is, you know, marketed more towards 
sort of the global 2000 from a marketing perspective. But if you're just uh, someone who wants to tinker around with our open source tools, you'll find all the links on there anyways. And other than that, I think, you know, not much I want to talk about coming up. We do certainly have things coming up, but I would say, you know, I do a lot of travel to conferences and things like that, and I usually tweet about it. So just take a look out for that. And if you want to ever talk about anything, then just let me know when I'm in when I'm in your city, and I'm always happy to do so. So say hello in Meetspace. He's not shy. There we go. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for today's edition of the Data Nuts podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow me at Chris Wall on the Twitters, or my blog is wallnetwork.com. And my delightful friend, Ethan, he's at ECBanks on the Twitters, and his blog is ethancbanks.com. For more of our Data Not shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You'll find the Data Nots talking about containers, conferences, certs, PowerShell, clouds, engineering, you name it, we got it. Until then, may your server lights blink, your encryption never break, and your cables be cleanly managed. make all the fun of network engineers that you want because Ethan is a hey, long-time hey, hey. engineer and they are lazy, <laughs> lazy people. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> no, I mean, no. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're out there right. turning like, the I, network into a pretzel to deal with your crappy applications. Here.